The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Friday edition of Squawk Box. In our headlines, security forces in Ukraine control a fire at Europe's biggest nuclear plant. Authorities say radiation levels remain unchanged, but Kyiv warns it poses a risk 10 times the size of the Chernobyl disaster. If there's an explosion, that's the end for everyone. The end for Europe. The evacuation of Europe. Only urgent action by Europe can stop the Russian troops. Do not allow the death of Europe to come from a catastrophe at a nuclear power station. The US activates its nuclear response team as Presidents Biden and Zelensky hold further talks while the EU's energy commissioner tells CNBC any attacks against nuclear plants are a violation of global rules. We have to be well, um, clear that this is against all the international rules that uh, military operation is also targeting nuclear sites. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrives in Brussels for an emergency NATO meeting being dubbed one of the biggest days of diplomacy as calls grow for a ceasefire. Today's non-farm payrolls report is expected to show job creation slowing, adding to uncertainty over the U.S. economic outlook as Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester tells CNBC it's critical to get inflation under control. We'll see some improvement in the second half of the year, but we won't be near 2%. We'll still be, you know, three to four, you know, in the three and a half to 4% or even higher, given the Ukraine situation and its implications. So let's kick off the story with the latest news on this nuclear power plant. Russian troops have shelled this Europe's largest power plant in Ukraine. Ukraine's state emergency service says a fire near the site has now been extinguished. The shelling of the plant has prompted widespread concern about the safety of Ukraine's atomic infrastructure. The IAEA says the fire didn't affect essential equipment but that it is putting its incident and emergency center into full response mode. Ukrainian authorities say all reactors are now safe. NBC's Alice Barr has the latest from Washington. Tonight, Ukrainian authorities say Europe's largest nuclear power plant is secured after a fire in a training building on the grounds. Ukrainian officials saying Russian forces were firing on the plant from all sides and warned that if it were to blow up, it would be 10 times larger than Chernobyl. The White House saying it's seen no sign of elevated radiation coming from the plant and the International Atomic Energy Agency says the fire has not affected essential equipment. The key here is to extinguish the fire um, and thus to prevent uh, irreparable damage to the uh, power supplies for the cooling system. The attack kept firefighters from immediately accessing the plant, according to Ukraine's state emergency service. President Biden speaking tonight with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, together urging Russia to stop any military action in the area. Earlier today, Zelensky called for a direct meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. I think I have to talk with Putin. The world has to talk with Putin because there are no 
and other ways to stop this war. Zelensky says he's willing to offer concessions, though never on Ukraine's independence. Also earlier today, Ukrainian and Russian officials tentatively agreed to a temporary ceasefire in some areas to let civilians evacuate and bring food and medicine in. But tonight it's clear there is no end in sight to the flaming conflict Russia has brought upon its neighbor. In Washington, Alice Barr, NBC News. Well, in a further video statement, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, issued a stark warning saying the Russian attack could trigger disaster in Europe. If there's an explosion, that's the end for everyone. The end for Europe. The evacuation of Europe. Only urgent action by Europe can stop the Russian troops. Do not allow the death of Europe to come from a catastrophe at a nuclear power station. Europe must now wake up. The largest nuclear power plant in Europe is currently burning. Right now, Russian tanks are shooting at the nuclear blocks. These are tanks equipped with thermal cameras, meaning that they know what they are shooting at. They're prepared for this. Well, in normal times on this Friday, I'd be stood here talking about the non-farm payrolls report and probably what its impact would be on the Federal Reserve's decision making on interest rates and what it implied in terms of the rate path and also what it meant for inflation. But quite frankly, I think even as it's a very important report, its significance in terms of the interest rate path and where markets are going probably is not that significant today. Today, we're very much looking at the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, and we're very focused on what is happening with this nuclear power plant, and hopefully it is now safe. But the futures suggest that the US will have a negative start to the trading session. As you can see here, we have an implied open for the Dow of uh, down about 100 points. Um, we're essentially flat on the S&P 500, but the Nasdaq also implied to open down 50 points. Asia's having a very weak session here, and there are a number of things swirling around in the Asian story that you need to be aware of. Obviously, there's a significant reaction to the news of that shelling of that nuclear plant overnight and inevitably uh, Japan, a country that has known its own nuclear problems and disasters of late, uh, is down two and a quarter of one percent. Hong Kong having a lot of domestic issues around Omicron. Um, that market down also nearly two and a half percent and the Hong Kong market off nearly nine tenths of one percent here. So the Asian markets are weak. There's a real argument going on among the uh, banking analysts about what the top looks like for oil at the moment. I was looking at a JP Morgan report earlier. They're talking about $185 a barrel uh, uh, potentially for Brent crude uh, before we see the top for this market. City, they're looking at a top right now for oil. So you uh, pays your money and you take your choice. Uh, but ultimately at the moment we know that there are plenty of drivers for this energy price to go higher from here. We're staying in touch with this market. We're up at 111 spot 28 on Brent crude currently. WTI 108 and 66 dollars a barrel. Karen. And Jeff, very big predictions there around the oil market. But let's come back to the politics, says Russian President Vladimir Putin has told his French counterpart, Emmanuel Macron, that Russia will achieve its goals in Ukraine. In a statement issued after the two spoke by phone, the Kremlin said 
Its goals included the demilitarization and neutrality of Ukraine. Putin went on to say that Russia's spe special operation in Ukraine was going according to plan. Dear comrades, I want to say that the special military operation is going strictly in accordance with schedule, according to the plan. All the goals are being successfully achieved. In the first apparent sign of progress in talks between Russia and Ukraine, the two countries agreed on the need for humanitarian corridors to deliver aid and help civilians exit the Ukraine crisis. Now, the Russian negotiator Vladimir Medinsky reported substantial progress at Thursday's talks, the second round of negotiations since Russia launched its offensive. Steve joins us from Brussels this morning, where NATO foreign ministers are meeting throughout this morning. Steve, it's hard to see how diplomacy achieves anything at this point, given what we've heard from that conversation between Macron and Putin at this point, where Putin's objectives are just simply not around Ukraine's sovereignty and are at odds with NATO. Yeah, Karen, good morning to you. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, and apologies for not being in vision at this moment. Uh, obviously, here in NATO, there's a stunning amount of security, and that's preventing us uh, getting in front of the camera. But absolutely, Karen, all of the above. Let me just explain to you what I'm doing here in Brussels, and hopefully I'll be in vision within the hour explaining it uh, in a bit more detail. We're here at a meeting of what's called the North Atlantic Council. Now, that's the, the, the decision-making body of NATO. Um, you've got the 30 NATO members attending. Uh, you've got EU. You've got Finland and Sweden coming as well. And that's very interesting, of course, because both of those countries, uh, according to local opinion polls, are now very, very interested in joining NATO. And that's a huge reversal uh, of the last couple of years. And both countries have already been threatened by Vladimir Putin that uh, there would be huge ramifications if they were to join NATO. But you've got Anthony Blinken here as well, the US Secretary of State. He's on a uh, five-stop tour. Uh, of Europe, uh, six of actually, the three Baltic countries, uh, Poland, Moldova, and of course here in Brussels to kick it off. So this is a very important meeting. Why is it important? Well, because something called Article 4 has been triggered. Now, Article 4 has been triggered many times over the years, but not by eight countries. That is completely unprecedented. Now, this is not to be, and I'm going a bit technical here, so no apologies. This is not to be confused with Article 5. So let me just explain to you what's been triggered here. That is, the eight countries, including those Baltic nations that Anthony Blinken will be going to, and uh, Poland that I was in last week, and the Czech Republic and a couple of others as well, uh, have enacted Article 4 because they fear for their territorial integrity, their political independence, and indeed their security. They've been threatened. So the main topic now at the NAC, the North Atlantic Council, Council here, is to discuss that and work out a joint path going forward. I will just very briefly tell you what Article 5 is because that's very important to differentiate. That is where one of uh, the NATO countries has an armed attack against it, and that should be considered an armed attack on all. So very important to say Article 4 has been triggered, not Article 5. Now, why is that important? Because it means at the moment uh, Russia has not, uh, of course, um, gone over the territorial line uh, attacking any NATO country. And this becomes very important because one of the key things that Mr. Zelensky has been asking for the last couple of years is to get Ukraine into NATO. And were Ukraine in NATO now, then that would be, of course, uh, a direct conflict between NATO and its entire grouping under Article 5 uh, and indeed uh, Russia as well. So very important to differentiate there. But what is NATO actually doing? Well, it's doing an awful lot, but it's not doing anywhere near as much, of course, as Mr. Zelensky would want. First of all, it's looking after its own defence as well. It's uh, enacted uh, the NATO response force, getting more troops near the border. Um, the US has sent reinforcements to Europe. It's increased its readiness across the whole uh, of the NATO region, but especially, as I was talking a lot last week, about the eastern flank. Germany, of course, uh, has uh, enacted an enormous turnaround as well. Huge amount of defence spending will be going in now, spending on planes, on drones, 
100 billion uh, euro defence plan. The EU, for the first time in its history, uh, is spending 450 million euros to fund weapon supply to an outside country, to Ukraine as well, uh, providing weapons for war zone and the financing for it as well. So there's enormous amounts going on within NATO to defend itself. But what's it doing for Ukraine? Well, uh, as everybody is aware now, you've only got to tap into any search engine to see that so many countries, 20-plus countries, are sending ammunition, they're sending anti-tank weapons, the javelins that we talked about a lot, anti-aircraft weapons, uh, the stingers, uh, and vast amount of um, uh, material, uh, machine guns, fuel, um, a lot more ammunition. I've just witnessed a large amount of that ammunition uh, going uh, east when I was in Poland uh, a week ago as well. So that is what Ukraine support is getting at the moment in Poland. And that's very important as well, because if NATO says we as a group are sending this material uh, over to Ukraine to fight Russians, and of course that potentially risks exacerbating things. And as uh, Jens Stoltenberg has said, he's the Secretary General, will be speaking here, opening proceedings. He said there is no space for miscalculation or misunderstanding. So the other important thing that we talked a little bit about in recent days is making sure that there are lines of communication channels to avoid accidents with the Russians as well, because, of course, if NATO is patrolling more aggressively its borders and the Russians are patrolling their borders aggressively as well, the risk of an accident uh, obviously becomes more to the fore. Now, let's go back to Mr Zelensky very briefly, and I know that uh, we've got to move on as well, but the fact of the matter is he hasn't got NATO membership. He would want NATO membership. He hasn't been given a no-fly zone, and he wants a no-fly zone. He hasn't been given fighters and helicopters, and he would want that as well. Perhaps the most contentious in the very short term is this issue we're hearing a lot about. It's the no-fly zone. Jen Psaki over at the White House has talked about this quite a bit as well, and why we can't do it as well. And, and the fact of the matter is, NATO is very concerned that if it says right, there is a no-fly zone uh, over Ukraine. For a start, that would also present, prevent uh, Ukrainian um, aircraft being in the air as well. So that would present, prevent them from being able to defend themselves, perhaps with the airports that they have got left as well. But also, it means you're putting NATO pilots over Ukrainian territory as well, uh, with the risk that, A, that they could get shot down, or B, that they could be in direct contention and firefights and what have you uh, with the Russians, who uh, obviously would not recognise that no-fly zone here. So NATO, very, very concerned that it has to show a very, very bus front. It has to do a huge amount of support for Ukraine, but there are certain lines and certain contentious areas where they are loath to go at this moment. Jeff and Karen. Yeah, Steve, let me just pick up for a moment here, because obviously the Ukrainians are, uh, are desperate to uh, secure their skies yet again here. But as you've pointed out, there's little likelihood of movement on the no-fly zone. We are very focused on this uh, shelling of the largest nuclear civilian plant in Ukraine. Do you think this will come up at all at this meeting? And even though this is a defensive military alliance, when you are talking about large swathes of uh, European landmass being threatened by a nuclear catastrophe, surely NATO has to take that on board and consider what options it may have to defend that facility. Yeah, and I hear what you're saying as well. But, I mean, again, we can build up defences for the eastern flank, for Poland, for Romania, for Slovakia, for all those Baltic countries that are, quite frankly, probably in terror of what the actions uh, from Mr. Putin and Russia are at the moment. But, again, any more action as a NATO body in Ukraine at the moment basically means, OK, then it's 
NATO versus Russia on the ground in Ukraine, Ukraine in, in a very direct way. At the moment, it is indirect support for Ukraine. And whether NATO can do a lot more support for Ukraine, that is a moot point as well. And of course, as I say, at the moment, it's been by individual countries, by the EU, by the US, by the UK, coordinating their support for Ukraine. But were we to see NATO as a body uh, bringing support into Ukraine, I think that possibly would take things to the next level. And, and that is where people are very, very concerned, of course. We must remember as well, Mr. Putin has already put uh, his nuclear forces on a uh, heightened state of alertness, whatever that may well mean as well. So NATO does not want to end up uh, in, let's be honest about it, the, the ultimate concern is that uh, NATO and Russia have a face-off, which then leads to something uh, far more threatening for the planet, as, as Mr. Zelensky has been talking about. Steve, we'll come back to you later on. Thank you very much indeed uh, for now. Uh, so we'll return to that uh, NATO session. Uh, we'll also hear from uh, the uh, principals uh, at that event as well. We're hoping uh, that will happen before we wrap up the programme this morning. Let's get to Charles Kupchan, a senior fellow at uh, the Council on Foreign Relations and Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University. Charles, you'll have just heard Steve talking about the limits on the involvement NATO can have at this stage. Does the apparent shelling of this large nuclear civilian facility change the maths as far as you're concerned on what is permissible on behalf of the Western powers? I don't think it raises the prospect that NATO is going to get directly involved on Ukrainian territory. My understanding is that the building that was hit is an outlying building. It's not where the reactors are. We don't yet have a lot of good information. So it doesn't look like there has been any release of radioactivity. If that's the case, it could be that the UN, the international IAEA could get involved. But I don't think this, this is changing the game. I agree with your correspondent, very low likelihood of a no-fly zone. This meeting that we're seeing taking place today, I don't think will ever broach the concept of NATO getting directly involved in Ukraine. It will focus more on reinforcing NATO's eastern flank and trying to make sure that if Putin does go further, if, for example, he moves into western Ukraine and then tries to sort of take some shots at convoys in Poland, that NATO is ready to respond in a forceful way. As we look at the potential challenges to uh, President Putin at the moment, it's very difficult to see how there could be regime change in the short term as a consequence of the increased pressure we're now seeing put on that government. The, the oligarchs were largely brought to heel, it seems, through the 90s and the last two decades. And there doesn't seem to be a clear heir apparent how do you see this story unfolding? Because at the moment, it seems there are two options on the table here. Ukraine uh, folds or there is regime change, but hard to see how that would happen. I think you're right to say that timing here is, is an important issue. And I think, unfortunately, that the Russians are likely to succeed their military objectives in eastern Ukraine. I'm going to set aside western Ukraine for now. That is to take the main urban centers, including the capital. The Ukrainians are putting up an incredible fight, much stronger, much more tenacious than anyone expected. 
but they face a farly of a vastly superior Russian military. And I don't think Putin's position is going to be threatened soon enough to prevent that. My gut tells me that over the long run, this is not going to work to Putin's advantage. Number one, because even if he takes Kyiv and installs a puppet regime, it will be a regime that has no support, no legitimacy in Ukraine. It will rule over 44 million seething Ukrainians. We're seeing in Russia itself a level of public and elite discomfort with this war. Some very prominent influential Russians are speaking out openly, saying this is uh, an immoral war. We are against this war. Something is afoot, and especially if the people around Putin, the oligarchs, those with vested interests in keeping economic ties to the West, see their wealth disappearing, it's not inconceivable to me that this could be the end uh, the beginning of the end of the Putin regime, but it's going to take time to play out. Charles, can I bring up one of the main arguments that Putin still has? And he mentioned that on the call again with the President Emmanuel Macron from France, that he was concerned about the expansion of NATO. And we think about the conversation over many years about the underspending of NATO members, whether there was any significance of this alliance anymore. And you think about what's happened now recently, is Germany very quickly pledging to spend more money to spend over 2% of GDP out of defence spending. But other members will be around the table. Karen, Karen, we're, we're losing you. Um, Charles, let me jump in here. And apologies for, for you not being able to hear the last question. I think we've, we've got one of those bugs in the system again. Let me come back to the question that I wanted to follow up with. Um, China's position. We're on the verge of a, an important um, meeting in China where we are looking really for some news on the economy. But do you think we're likely to hear anything with regard to their position going forward on Russia? Because at the moment, I think the world has looked on and been disappointed by the Chinese response, but perhaps understands given the increasing closeness we've seen between China and Russia. It's certainly an issue to keep a close eye on. I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine puts China in a very awkward position. And we've seen the Chinese flip-flop over the last couple of weeks. One day they say we stand firmly behind our Russian partners, we oppose the enlargement of NATO. And the next day they say we stand by principles of non-interference, sovereignty and territorial integrity. Read between the lines. They're saying, we don't like the fact that Russia has just invaded its neighbor. My best guess is that the Chinese are going to generally stay close to Moscow, in part because it's a relationship that is useful to the Chinese. It's a marriage of convenience, but it still is a marriage. I do think one uh, thing to keep an eye on is if these sanctions tighten, and I think they will, and the United States then says we are going to apply secondary sanctions to countries that continue to do business with Russia, then what does China do? Where is China going to come down? It's conceivable to me that what we're looking at here is the beginning of Cold War 2.0, not just with Russia, but perhaps with some combination of Russia and China, if China throws its lot in with Russia. We're not there yet. I think the Chinese support the Russians, but they don't like the risk-taking 
the disruption, the turmoil that Putin is, cause, is causing. So I, I think they're having a hard time right now in Beijing figuring out exactly which way they want to go. You and I are, uh, with apologies, both old enough to remember that uh, Russia's uh, involvement in Afghanistan ultimately brought an end to Brezhnev's time in the Kremlin, although it took a decade or so for that to happen. Are we talking the same kind of time frames if President Putin gets bogged down in something similar in Ukraine? No, I, I think it's a shorter timeline, in part because the stakes are higher. This is Ukraine, right? Putin has said, these are our brothers. And number one, Russians are gonna say, why are we killing our brothers? Number two, I think he has grossly miscalculated here. You know, he said, I think that he was thinking, we're gonna go in, we will liberate Ukrainians. They're wannabe Russians. And guess what? They are not wannabe Russians. They don't want anything to do with Russia now, in part thanks to Putin's invasion in 2014 and now his invasion in 2022. The other big change here is the world reaction, the sanctions. I mean, we saw 141 countries condemn Russia in the UN General Assembly. This is a huge hit to Russian stature. So assuming that the, that the Ukrainians continue in insurgency, that the sanctions continue, that the international condemnation continues, I do think Putin is going to feel a lot of pressure and could perhaps be toppled in, you know, in a one to two year time frame, not a decade. Charles, thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, Charles Kupchan, Senior Fellow Counsel on Foreign Relations and Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University. Uh, still to come on the programme this morning, uh, we're going to catch up on the latest situation on the EU energy story. The Commissioner has outlined the bloc's plans to wean itself off Russian energy supplies. We're going to bring you that exclusive interview in just a moment. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. The European Union is reportedly aiming to double the amount of gas in storage ahead of next winter, while also providing subsidies to help utility groups cut their reliance on Russian supplies. This according to a Commission draft proposal that the Financial Times has seen. The new rules would also require countries to have 80% of capacity filled by September. That's up from 30%. Well, Sylvia spoke to the EU's Commissioner for Energy, Kadri Simpson, and asked where the bloc is going to get its gas supplies from. Do we have to well build up our storage again? And, uh, and of course, we are looking for alternative supply routes. So I myself have... Uh, been uh, well in United States because U.S. Uh, LNG producers have helped us to replace uh, the decreasing 
uh, pipeline flows from Russia already this winter. But uh, but there are also uh, neighboring countries with whom we do have gas pipeline connection. Norway, Algeria, Azerbaijan, for example. And then uh, other major LNG producers um, like uh, Qatar um, well, have also expressed their willingness um, to replace some of the of the Russian uh, gas in case if we will have a disruption. And then on top of that, we have to well prioritize energy uh, efficiency or well, this is uh, this is um, savings. We just have to start consuming less. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it seems to me the maths don't add up at the moment, Sylvia. And the commissioner kind of gave the game away by saying we're just going to have to consume less. What is the timeline then at the moment if the commission really believes that it can find alternative sources? What is the timeline like now for some kind of blockade of energy supplies from Russia? So there's a lot of moving parts in this story, Jeff. Let's see whether or not the EU will manage to get more supplies in the coming months. Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, has already said that for the time being, in terms of gas storage, they're doing well. But the problem there, of course, is what will happen a couple of months later on this year, whether the EU will manage to have enough storage to essentially hit all the households in the block. So that is one of the main challenges for the European Commission. It's important to bear in mind as well that Kadri Simpson will announce next week new measures in this regard. Essentially, the EU is making an effort to become less dependent on Russian gas. The EU has tried to do that before, though, and it did not manage to achieve that. So let's see whether or not in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine will actually lead the EU to become indeed more independent when it comes to its energy sources. I want to take a moment to also look at sanctions, Jeff, because there's also a lot of talk that perhaps the EU moving forward should also block Russian oil and gas as part of the wider package of sanctions that they are preparing at the moment. So more sanctions on the way. And in this context, for several months now, the EU has been concerned that if they were to impose sanctions on Russia, the first thing that the Kremlin would do would indeed be cutting off those gas supplies. But so far, that has not happened. And indeed, Kadri Simpson, when I spoke with her yesterday, she did say that if that ends up being the case, if Russia ends up retaliating by cutting off those gas supplies, the EU is ready for that. I truly believe that the current sanctions that were carefully designed and that are massive, and uh, we proposed those sanctions uh, closely aligned with our international allies, that they will have a strong impact towards Russian economy. But well, what we saw um, from the previous uh, uh, well situation when Russia occupied Crimea and we introduced sanctions, that there might be a retaliation from Russian side. So yes, we are ready that uh, Russia's retaliation might cover energy sector. We do have contingency plans in place um, for the case of partial or full disruption of uh, natural gas, for example. 
I also want to draw your attention, Jeff, to the fire that broke in one of Ukraine's nuclear power plants overnight. Uh, we also talked about this, you know, energy security, in particular when it comes to nuclear energy. And so before of that fire actually started, country Simpson told me that the EU is preparing for a potential ecological disaster. If that happens, the EU is also assessing that and getting ready if indeed that ends up being the case. So a lot of moving parts in this story, Jeff. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.